Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Talking podcast. This is David Campbell, your host, and I am joined by a man who gave Steve Kerr some valuable career advice, and Steve Kerr bought him lunch. Mr. Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from the Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. How's it going, Terry? Doing all right. Good. Um, yeah, me too. We got a new dog, so she's like the size of a loaf of bread, and she's like you have to watch her all the time, but. Uh, I think she's going to be okay, so that's good. What breed is it? <laughs> it's some kind of a poodle, something mutt mix. I'm not really sure, but we'll see what she looks like when she grows up. So, but she, yeah, okay. she's she's tiny, so it's going all right. But uh, hey, um, before I forget, Terry, I've been doing a really bad job of giving people the address to sign up for your newsletter. I think so. I want to do that at the top so I don't forget. Uh, Terry has a newsletter. It's free. If you go to Cleveland.com/newsletters. You can sign up. All you got to do is click a box and put in your email. It literally takes a minute, and then you'll get everything that Terry writes every week, everything from Browns, Cavs, Guardians, to his faith in you column. So, all right, Terry, um, we're, we're going to get into the Browns today. We've got some Guardians uh, manager search stuff we're going to get into. The Cavaliers, I want to talk about Imani Bates and what you think they should do with him heading into the season. And we've got uh, a couple more letters from our 100th episode where we asked fans from all over the world to write in. Boy, we've gotten responses from, what, Portland, Charleston, South Carolina, the U.K. I think last week we got one from Kenya, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, we have one today from Colorado. So, um, all right, Terry, the Browns with a huge win. And Dan Lobby, our colleague, he wrote a column right at the end of the game about how uh, or maybe it was after the game the next morning about how this could be like a culture defining win for the Browns, where you look back at the end of the season and you're like that, that was where things changed. Um, but I thought you had a really strong take this morning about all the Watson talk and the, the 2023 Browns are not really about Deshaun Watson, are they? They're not. And clearly the quarterback has to play reasonably well. That's, I mean, that's the premise. Uh, you can't have, like, say, Watson playing like he did against the Steelers, which shows you could have a great defensive effort, but if you keep giving the ball to the other team, you're going to lose. So it isn't that the quarterback is irrelevant. It is the fact, though, that even if you looked at the preparation for the upcoming season, Andrew Barry, while fans and some of the media were screaming, oh, got to get receivers, get receivers, what did he do, David? They didn't. They went defense. Defense and more defense. And the reason being that Andrew Berry is very aware 
the Browns play in the AFC North, and they play outside, and it's cold, and that Deshaun Watson is not going to put up the type of numbers he put up in Houston in a dome. I mean, this is like elementary to start with that. It also escapes some some folks. And that's one of the, I think, the dangers of people who are so locked into fantasy league or, you know, the stats telling you something. It depends. It's kind of like owning a restaurant. Where is the location? You're so right, Terry. We've heard people say wins and losses are not a quarterback stat. And I, I thought you, you know, when we've seen this before, but you put it in your column, like in 2020, when Watson led the NFL in passing, the Texans went four and 12. Yeah, <laughs> it's like four and, 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 and we saw this last year. If your defense can't get off the field, it kills your offense. I mean, how many times last year do we see where the Browns were trying to get back into a game and teams would just march down the field and eat up seven minutes at a time? It, it kills the offense. And I thought that was a really strong point that you made about how when the when the Texans were good, when Watson was there, it was because the defense was good. Well, I mean, I have the numbers. His best year at 11-5, and five, the, the defense as a Romeo Cornell defense, I believe, they were ranked number four. Points allowed, by the way. And then when um, that last year where he set all those records, their defense is 27th. So they, uh, you, you look at that also, and you just know if you're playing six games, because you have to throw Cincinnati into it too. They have a good defense. You're playing six games in this division, you're not going to just roll out there and, and outscore everybody 35 to 33. And that's just not going to do it. And so you better have a really good defense. And, and Andrew Barry, as I wrote um, in the offseason, follow the money. You know, the money went to Dalvin Tomlinson and went to uh, Ogbo and it went to um, later Zadarius Smith and it went to Juan Thornhill. And he kept adding even extra, extra parts like Shelby Harris and McLeod. Uh, defense, defense, and more defense because he just felt that they needed to um, they needed to be a factor on that side of the ball. When was the last time we said the Browns' defense was a factor? Because even when they made the playoffs in 20, nobody said it was because of the defense. No, and, and I'm not telling Browns fans anything they don't know, but, like, this defense is real, man. Like, they, they have this thing they've started. Uh, Greg Newsom and I forget who they were. It might have been Grant Delpit. They could not get, get they could not wait to get back to the locker room after the game ended the other day to tweet out, best in the world. We're the best yeah. in the world, and we showed it today. And this, this best in the world thing, like, they are buying into this. They're buying into what Jim Schwartz is selling. I mean, look at these numbers, Terry. And again, you had some of these in your column. The, the Browns ranked sixth in points allowed. They were 20th last year. Mm-hmm. They're fourth versus the run, 25th last year. Uh, they've allowed three rushing touchdowns, which is the third fewest in the NFL. And Terry, two of those came after interceptions, yeah, like exactly. inside the 15-yard line, right? Well, I think one was a 10-yarder for, that uh, Lamar Jackson had, and the other one was the other. Um, the other one was on Sunday with uh, McCaffrey's first touchdown. Mm-hmm. So those were inside the 15-yard line. They gave up 22 rushing touchdowns last year, which was third most in the NFL. Um, they ranked first versus the pass. They were sixth last year, and they're 19th in scoring this season. They were 18th a year ago. Uh, So so in other words, my point is, look, the scoring is sort of the same. But this team is 3-2, and and I would say going through this early part of the schedule, I would have signed up for 3-2. and How about you? I think they would, too. They didn't didn't win the games we thought they'd win. Yeah. 
but three and two is three and two. And if you look at this schedule coming up, Terry, starting with the Colts on Sunday and then Seattle, and then they've got Arizona, and then they're at Baltimore, which is going to be a tough one, and at Pittsburgh. But the, they've got some, and then they're at Denver on November 26th on Thanksgiving weekend. Like there's some winnable, winnable games. We could be looking at a team that's seven and four, eight and four, maybe by the end of November. Uh, it's coming together, and and you brought this up, like how will Deshaun Watson look when he gets back? And that's a variable. But this defense is something that they're going to build this team on. And I thought you pointed that out in a pretty eloquent way. And also, the defense is what is the vibe of the team, as you mentioned, the spirit of the team. It's it's the defense that's driving that. And they have, you know, best in the world or this kind of thing. And um, these guys need gimmicks and things to keep themselves interested over the long haul because – I always thought playing big-time college football or pro football is probably mind-numbing because all week, all those meetings and all that film and all that preparation over and over and over again, I know my eyes would glaze over. I went, Lee Owens, when he coached at Akron U, he had me kind of spend a day with them, and I watched you know, tape with the, the players and some of this stuff, and I'm like going, I am glad I don't do this. <laughs> Along with the fact they were talking a whole other language with the jargon, but it just was watching the same couple plays, this same set, all this stuff over and over. And it gave me a, cause I didn't play football. You know, I played basketball and baseball. It gave me a, a really different view and appreciation of it. So you better find stuff you can grab onto just to make it interesting. Yeah. That's interesting, Terry. You know, um, I read a lot about uh, the differences between generations because we're in journalism and it's like we're trying to make sure we're meeting audience needs and everything. But when you and I played, the coach said to do something and you did it, right? Yeah, <laughs> like you didn't much, ask yeah. any questions. And I think what I've been reading about a lot of research is that this generation of players, they want to know why they're doing something, right? You talked mm-hmm. about like watching all this film and, and putting all this work. It's like why they want the vision and the reason behind uh, why they're doing something. And, and this best in the world thing has just like, that's the vision that Jim Schwartz has set. Like we're going to play with swagger and we're going to be the best in the world. And like, it, they have bought into this, like th- they could not wait to get back to the locker room to tweet this out. Um, it really tells you like they were thinking about it during the game. Um, I like yeah, go ahead, the fact, David, that first of all, I always thought all these pregame fights are stupid. I mean, just regardless of who did what or whatever, they're just stupid because Fortunately, nobody got thrown out of that game and nobody got hurt, but both could have happened. And I get that you want to have that little chip to it, but just because, you know, we were there. It started, then it went went to another part. Then it went to another part. This could have been bad. So that said, then on the first, stay with me, on the first possession, what did the Browns do? Two stupid penalties. Um, there was uh, Thornhill shoved a guy out of bounds. I think it was McCaffrey. And then it wasn't that, but it was a it was face mask of Desiria Smith. But what then, here's where I'm going with this. Schwartz must have got them together and said, this stops now. Because the rest were like a regular pass interference or something. It was back to football. And that's what I liked about this defense. I mean, it is rugged and physical. Who wants to play against them? But they're not dirty. You don't see flags flying all over the place. You don't see a ton of late hits or anything. Well, and how many times have we have we seen the Browns over the last few years uh, make a sack and the guy will land on the quarterback or hit him up high 
and, yeah. and you know, it's like they they ruin the whole play by doing dumb things. And you're right, Terry. This this defense does not do that stuff. But I do, I, I do want to say I know that fight was dumb, and I agree with like nothing good comes out of that. But I I do think it was important if you're a Browns fan. And the reason is how many times have we seen a Browns team show up and sleepwalk through a game mm-hmm. and not play hard and not show any emotion? I mean, those guys. The fight to me. Yeah, I mean, somebody could have gotten hurt, and it wasn't. A, it's not great, but it showed me that they were ready to go. Like quarterback, whoever was a quarterback, we're bringing it today, and you're in our house, and you're in for a long afternoon, win or lose. And that that kind of was important to me in that respect. That they they strapped it on, and were ready to go. That's probably the um, difference between a guy who played hockey and a guy who played <laughs> baseball and basketball. I guess so. so I guess that, so. You uh, don't want to see it every week, but uh, yeah. It, no, um, and, and I do understand that to a part. I just didn't like how it it, it kind of spread. I was getting really worried. And then he had, um, was it Williams, I think, for mm-hmm. the 49ers, just shoving everybody from behind. And, I mean, things could have – things fortunately didn't, but could have gone the other direction. And the officials, who even were apologizing for getting plays wrong on the public address system, maybe that was a good thing. They just decided they went uh, – like the real old Hogan's Heroes reference, I see nothing on that. So from before the game, they decide not to punish anybody for anything. They even throw a flag. Nothing. Yeah, it's a good thing they were out there. It could have could have been a lot worse uh, pretty quickly. But um, a couple more stats, Terry, that I wanted to mention before we move on from this defense. And is, a lot of people have seen this one, but the Brown and you had this in your column too. But the Browns have allowed a thousand and two yards this season. And just for historical context, that's the third fewest by an NFL team through its first five games since 1970. Only yeah. the 1971 Baltimore Colts with 836 and the 1970 Minnesota Vikings with 945 have given up fewer yards than the Browns. Um, that's pretty good. Um, and I thought th- I thought this was interesting, Terry. And I, we've been doing a lot of comparison b- between the coverage uh, efficiency for the Browns secondary and the linebackers last year compared to this year. There's a guy on Twitter that I follow and his name is uh, Anjan Menon. I hope I said your name right, Anjan. He's, he's a great follow. His account is uh, at A-N-J-U-N-M-E-N-O-N 100. But he does a lot of data work and he created a graph where if your offense is having a play com- completely covered and versus when your defense completely covers a pass play and he screens, he takes out screens. So screen passes don't count. So basically, this is a measure of is your offense deceiving a defense and is your defense covering an offense when they send people out? The Browns, Jim Schwartz has this defense covering 48, 49 percent on this chart of of opposing offenses pass plays. They're covering it in the right way where guys in the right spot and they're covering guys like that is the best in the league. Number two is San Francisco at 46 or 47 percent. This is this is a graph, so I'm just ballparking it here. But what that means is like almost 50 percent of the time, Jim Schwartz has the right defense called and the guys are in the right place and every receiver is accounted for. Like, I bet the Browns would have been around 30 percent last year on that stat, well, who, which I thought was really uh, interesting. Right. Who is different in the secondary this year versus last year? This is significant. I mean, Thornhill and... Not much else, right? Like they're rotating some yeah. guys in, but like and Rodney and McLeod, but like the rest of the guys are all the same. That's exactly. your point, right? That is my point. Yeah. Uh, and Joe Woods, who did the infamous quarters thing, is you know I was told, which meant you 
or have four guys in the secondary covering basically four plots of grand a grass out there. Um, and then you get all the everybody's pointing at everybody else, where the Browns are a lot more of the cover one, I believe it's called, where you're playing a lot of man to man and challenging you guys. And I know that when you look at, by the way, I think uh, Andrew Berry deserves a lot of credit, not only for that defensive front, you bring in Tomlinson and, and uh, Zadarius Smith and Ogbo, but how about drafting uh, Emerson? Was it the third Talk about round? value. Yep. Yeah. Talk about value. I mean, he's definitely a first round pick. And so you see that. And also Dewan Jones, you know, who's playing. So he's starting to hit on those picks that were they, you know, below the first round area. And they're making major, major impact. Um, I really believe that Barry has put together a tremendous roster. Now, granted, some of this came from uh, John Dorsey, but now Nick Chubb is gone. You know, Dorsey did take Denzel Ward, and the the analytics people, which Barry was a part of, took uh, Garrett going way back in the old days. But for the most part, uh, the defense has been brought in here by Andrew Barry because he realized, I know I'm hitting on this, but I just think all the Watson talk and this and that, um, he's they got to have the defense to go with it. Now, the tough part, if you're a Browns fan, is this. It feels like you've been waiting for Watson for 10 years. Between the suspension and the injury, yep, it's 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 been a long time. Well, the, in, the <laughs> suspension. Then you had, he played six games, but the rust. The, the rust, the, the rust belt period. Then you had the first game, it was rainy, he was just okay. Didn't matter, the defense just ran over Joe Burrow and the Bengals. Game two, Watson, frankly, gave the game to the Steelers. He gave it to them. Game three, um, he has a tremendous game against Houston. I'm sorry, excuse me, against Tennessee. Tennessee. Yep. Why, why am I flashing back to when they were Houston? Um, against Tennessee. And then that's it. That's the last we've seen. Now, I'm not and I've been defending him about the fact I believe he's hurt. I hate to see the words rotate or cough. I don't care, no structural damage or whatever. When your job is to throw something and your rotator cuff on that arm hurts, you got a problem. And so we'll we'll see how that works out. But um, I really do understand Browns fans' frustration because I feel like uh, that myself, that it's just been waiting and waiting, and I still don't know what they have in him. But I like the fact that the roster is built that he doesn't have to be Superman. That's something you can build on. Uh, you know, if you're, if one quarterback gets hurt, you can put another one in. You can still hang in games. You're right, Terry. Um, oh, just to wrap up this chart. So, so San yeah, Francisco. No, that's okay. I just wanted. I just wanted. I had one more thing I want to mention because I think Browns fans will like this. Um, the Steelers are the are pretty much the worst in the league. They are only defensively covering efficiently about thirty three percent of offenses' um, pass hmm. patterns, and on offense they're being covered about forty seven percent of the time, which is the highest in the league. So, another strike against Matt Canada, their Matt offensive Canada, coordinator. Yeah. And I know he's taking a lot of heat there, but the Forty ers are by far and away the the best uh, on uh, in terms of offensive. Um, deception and being able to throw the defense off. So I thought that was interesting, but 
Um, By the way, let's talk a little bit about that because I did yeah. write it somewhat. Because um, I was told before the game by someone who knows, as they say, that um, one of the reasons that Schwartz does so well against Shanahan as you know, he calls it eye candy and that, that he just says, we're going to kind of leave our guys where we are because a lot of those guys, they, they, they turn around, shift all over the place, and people end up in the same spots where they began. Not the same people, but others do. So just kind of watch that. Secondly, he wants to tempt you into really spreading out and leave the middle of the field open for easy throws for the quarterback. They kept that middle area crowded. And if you looked some of the time, that's why Brock Purdy had some problems because where he was used to those receivers being just open almost on every play, they weren't. Well, I can't wait to see this Ravens game on November 12th, Terry, because mm-hmm. yeah. just like you were saying, Todd Munkin of the Ravens came in and he's like, hey, these Browns defensive linemen want to fly up the field. Great. Fly up the field. We're going to run inside you and trap you yep. and do a lot of 49er type stuff. And and they, you know, they got Jim Schwartz that day, but he's like, it's not happening against San Francisco. And he's going to have a, I think he's going to bring the same kind of approach where it's kind of restrained aggression mm-hmm. a little bit and making sure your angles are right. When you, when you go off the ball, um, you're not going to see the Browns play the same way where they're flying up the field against Baltimore and uh, the November 12th game. I think it's going to be really interesting. I also think the <laughs> Seattle game is a big game for them. That, mm-hmm. that could be a really hard game on the road there. Uh, so that's, and look, if they don't have Deshaun this week, and I thought that what did you? How did you think the kid played? How did you think Walker played? Um, I thought he played really well for the situation he was in. I we were both sitting in the press box, Terry, on that last drive. It's like, why are they throwing the ball? And we found out later that Kevin Stefanski <laughs> told him like. We're going to roll you right, and you are not going to throw the ball. And he <laughs> threw it anyway. <laughs> and I just, you know, I used to coach hockey, and it's like you can you can make all the best laid plans, but like sometimes a player is just going to do something. And 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 Walker admitted after the game, he's like, I I never should have done that. I apologize to Kevin. <laughs> but everybody's like, what is Stefanski doing when yeah, it happened? Word. And then we found out later that it was just a. Uh, a rogue player making a rogue play on I one play. I think the next so. time that gets that way, the ball's just going to Kareem Hunt, and that'll be the end of it. Yeah, just it's call a, it a day just, and kick, just, kick the field goal. And, the field goal. <laughs> and then, all right, I've been waiting for the kicker report. You've refused to do it. <laughs> let's go. Let's do it. Kicker report. Mr. Hopkins. Okay. And also, a co- compare and contrast. Uh, Jake Moody comes into that game. He made nine field goals. Nine for nine. Um, and then, so what is he? He's one for three. They gave him a tough one. I think I forgot what it was 52 or 54 yards. Uh, and they, you know, that was a hard day to kick. It was rainy. It was windy blowing from side to side because sometimes when it's rainy, the ball doesn't travel as far when you kick it. I learned all this from Phil Dawson, by the way, not that I, I don't know a thing about kicking. Unless I Who got was there from. Sunday, by the way. Yes, he was. He was probably saying, no, you don't want to try that field goal. That's really a hard one at that <laughs> end of the field. Okay. So, um, Dustin misses his first one, Hopkins did, from the, I think it was 43 or something. In fact, I even put in my notes, that could come back to hurt him. But then he nails his next four. And it's like he adjusted to the conditions. And that's the key part. You know, even Justin Tucker, these guys all miss field goals. But you don't want those games where you're missing two and three. Because if you get right down to it, if Hopkins doesn't go four for five, the Browns lose. If 
Moody goes two or three, the Browns lose. And, of course, had that guy caught that pass from T.J. Walker, the Browns lose. But this is why these games are that way. They're very, very tight, and little things matter. And I am so tired of hearing seven points are better than three because in the AFC North, when the weather is bad and the wind is blowing and the ball is wet, three points are better than none. And Kevin Stefanski was right on wavelength with you, Terry. He's like, he, yeah. he's after the game, he, they were asking about his approach in, in terms of when, when to take points and when not to. And he's like, what was the final score? Mm-hmm. And someone said 19 to 17. He said, that's about what I thought it would be. So he knew that three points were going to be big uh, that day. And, and they sure enough were. So um, we, we probably should give a, well, there's a few people I think we should shout out here, Terry. I thought Kevin Stefanski, for all the grief he, he's gotten from fans this season, I thought he called a really smart game. Mm-hmm. And he did some things. It was a bye week, so he had some time. But there was just there were some innovative wrinkles. And Lance Reisland, our um, correspondent who does film breakdowns, has a story up today. I was really interested in that Kareem Hunt touchdown run because if you didn't notice, he had an unba- Stefanski had an unbalanced line where there was – it was uh, Ethan Posich, and then Dewan Jones was to the right of him playing guard, and then David Njoku was playing yeah. right tackle, and then he loaded the left side with four linemen and put somebody in motion, and he basically created a wall on the left side, and they were expecting a sneak because whenever the Browns put yeah. Harrison Bryant in, it's always some kind of sneak, so he pitches it to Hunt, and they just you could see Stefanski just had it all scripted out where it's like we're we're going to unbalance the line. So there's only two guys on the right of the center, throw them off, putting a tight end over there. And then they built this wall and they just caught the 49ers napping on that. I, they just, they really did. There was a beautiful lane there. And it just, it was, I thought it was a really smart play call. And I know Stefanski said that, um, that Bill Ca- that uh, Callahan had a lot to do with the game plan that we, but wherever that came from, I thought it was a really smart wrinkle that gave them a big play. So I like how Stefanski does that too. He'll, he'll mention his assistants having input. Because um, that's important. It does. Sh- One thing we could, we know about Stefanski, he doesn't have a lot of ego. That's for sure. Um, and when so they lose, it's have, on me. Yeah. He says. And when yeah. they win, he spreads the credit around. Yeah, You're right. It's, it's, it's on Bill Callahan. Um, the other person I wanted to mention in that was Corey Bohorkas, averaged 54 yards a, a punt, three of them inside the 20, uh, only one touchback. Longest was 69. And when Cade York was missing field goals, I kept getting these emails from people that said, check the holder, check the Corey Bajorquez, because a couple of times where he is in other places, Bajorquez, the kicker there, had a, a tougher year than in the past. And it was like there's something wrong with him holding the ball. Well, I think whatever was going on, as we see now, Probably the kicker was just having a rough year or whatever it may be because he holds the ball just fine for Dustin Hopkins. All those LSU fans emailing in to defend their kicker. No, I mean, I'm serious. I got about, <laughs> I a, half, oh, I got about a half dozen. No, no, I remember this. It, Terry, we checked I, into this last year. Terry, yeah. remember when we started getting emails yeah. and we looked into it and it, what, there was nothing to it. You're right. There was like a drop, but it wasn't – it just wasn't that, you know – it's a it's a line. There was a, a famous uh, early NBA agent named Ron Grinker, who was I used to talk to all the time. And I remember he had this line. He called it accurate but not true. 
and he, I remember I called him. He represented World Be Free, and I said, "Did you really turn down, you know, five million for four years for World Be Free?" This is back when that was big money. And he goes, "Accurate, but not true." And I said, "Well, what do you mean?" He goes, "Get." He always said, "Get out your pencil." And then it was, "Yeah, five million for four years, paid off over twenty years." Ah. Uh. You know, so it really wasn't that. Well, in the same way, yes, the guy's numbers went down, but you know, the kicker in that point, he might have been kicking with a groin problem, which some of these guys have. In other words, there were other things going on other than well, Horkis can't hold the ball right. And yeah, it's a, it's it's like a different world with the with Hopkins well, out there. Those, and, and yeah, it is. I mean, he missed the first one. I didn't particularly panic that he was going to okay. All right, here they go. You can start hitting the crossbar, the upright, or I mean, I didn't think that you were going to go into that. And it was a hard day to kick. That was a really good. T- Actually, both times he's kicked at the stadium. Um, Tennessee was a really nice day, but Cincinnati was rainy too with everything. By the way, did you see he made a reference to sitting on the bench wearing his coat on the there, but making sure to keep his cleats dry, <laughs> which I never heard. I guess he I must have missed of- something with what cleats. I thought of Phil Dawson because everything yeah. matters, right? And, yeah, and so Hopkins, Hopkins says, like, I, I sit and I sit on the bench and I make sure I keep everything dry because he doesn't want his shoes to get wet. And because he said kicking with water in your shoes is no fun and it changes everything. Yeah, and I'm like, slip. okay, I mean, it's good. And everybody's probably like, oh, look at the kicker; he won't even stand out in the rain. <laughs> but like, he's doing it because there's a reason because <laughs> he wants to make his next kick. So who well, knew, right? It's kind of like these guys are are eccentric artistes. And the ones that are really good, whatever they want to do, they want to chant. They want to, I, if it's going through the up, what you want is good. Make it go through the uprights. Yeah. They're like uh, hockey goaltenders They're they're wired a little bit differently than yeah. the rest of us, aren't they? So, all right. A couple of the guys worth mentioning, Terry, um, JOK, boy, talk about accurate, but not true. This is accurate, but true. But we, we, everybody noticed him out there from the first kick the other day. And he was all over the field. You could tell from the eye test that he had had a good game. Pro Football Focus agreed they have him at 89.8, which is like all pro level mm-hmm. numbers. Yeah. I mean, Miles Garrett gets over 90 sometimes, but I can't remember many Browns who've had over 89. Um, and, you know, PFF grades aren't everything, but it kind of confirms what you see on the field. Uh, and real quick, as the unofficial president of the Dewan Jones fan club, 73.5 for Dewan Jones. He was the Browns' highest graded offensive line. But I do want to give – a quick mention to Jedrick Wills Jr. I saw some stuff from Jedrick Wills that I had not seen in quite some time. He was finishing some run blocks in a big way. I mean, to to the point where he was blocking guys for four or five seconds. I, I think it was about 235 left when the Browns were driving down for the, what would be the winning field goal. And that big run, it was a 14-yard run. Uh, I think by Ford that went down to the Niners, 46. And he, he kicked somebody out and basically just took him to the sideline. I'm like, wow, look at Jedrick Wills. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that is the, that was the physical element that I think a lot of people have been looking for. And this game might be a big turning point for him in terms of finishing blocks, being more physical, and just having some nasty that I think a lot of people have been looking for, uh, especially Browns fans. But I thought he had a really strong game. He graded out at 69.0, which is um, – not bad. 76 snaps. And I thought he really finished some plays. and That was good to see. So all I know is um, he's played five NFL games. Five. Jedrick Wills? No, 
Dewan Jones, good back. Oh, Dewan Jones, sorry. <laughs> I, no, I threw Jedrick Wills Yeah, isn't out. that something? I, I went to the fan club. Now, Jedrick Wills did have that one dumb play. Remember, he was got flagged for being downfield on that one um, pass or whatever. But that overall, wasn't him. That wasn't him. I think that was on somebody else. He, oh, he really? had his hand. Yeah, he had his hands on his helmet. Like, oh, oh my I gosh, thought, how can yeah. you call that? How can you call that? And then I'm like, oh, it was on somebody else. It was on, uh, it was on Wyatt Teller or somebody. I don't, I don't oh, want to give the wrong name. Right. See, so. poor Jedrick Will. This is what happens <laughs> to you. They just assume if there was something wrong. Well, first of all, he assumes if something's wrong, he did it. So he puts hands on his helmet. I assume because he probably did it and he's got hands on his helmet, it was his fault. And Wyatt Taylor's like, I'm, I'm just going to let them solve this himself. <laughs> I did want all to right. mention, Terry, you, you bring Your up Dewan Jones. Yeah. We did not hear Nick Bosa's name very often no. the other day. The one time we did, uh, Bosa got in free and clear. The, the 49ers ran a blitz from the corner. I think a corner stepped up and came in, and the Browns had a bad uh, – it was Dewan Jones, and one of the running backs was picking up – they both picked up the blitzer from the outside mm-hmm. and let Nick Bosa come free inside, and that was Nick Bosa's sack that day. But the rest of the – there were plays where I saw Nick Bosa, like, give up because he, yeah. he, he knew he was not getting around Dewan Jones. I thought it was a pretty strong performance. You're right by a guy who's playing his fifth NFL game, so – that, that's where it's I was stuff. going with this, that he there. And, and also, good, I'm glad we cleared up the Jedrick Wills thing. He goes, not accurate, not true. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go back and check that. But I, I was like, oh. I think you're right, by the way. All right, well, we'll check it out. So the Brown, anything else on the Browns, Terry? I think that's we it. Take so a break? We, we're not discussing whether Deshaun plays or doesn't play. He's not day-to-day. My view is he ain't playing until he's playing. Yeah, and the Browns, the, the Browns are saying he's not playing until he can play, until he's 100% or close but to he's it. Day so. to day. He's been saying day-to-day. If he doesn't <laughs> play till Sunday, it'll be a month of day-to-day. Yeah, we see the Guardians do this and sometimes. Want, see, they have a guy want, day-to-day, and then, know, and then they go not, on the 30-day DL or not, whatever. Not just them. I, I wrote their whole thing, too, that it's just an NFL thing. You know, they always put him on. It is. It's tough, though, Terry, man. Like, I'm thinking about Stefanski. What what do we want Stefanski to say? Like, oh, he's playing. Are we expecting? And then then we get right back into the thing we were in before. So I think he's trying to just be conservative. I would just say, say, yeah. Well, he isn't being. When you say day-to-day, it's not conservative. You say he's out for a while until he's ready to play. When's he going to be ready to play? We'll let you know when he's ready. We don't know. We'll let you know. Yeah. Yeah, because these things take time. How long? They take time. We'll let you know when he's ready. Day-to-day sounds like he should be ready by Thursday. All right. Well, we'll see. We should know more tomorrow when the Browns practice. I'm on a war against (laughs) day-to-day. I'm tired of day-to-day. you got to do better than that. All right. (laughs) So the Browns are playing at the Colts on Sunday in a 1 o'clock kickoff. We will see. You know, David, I'm going to go even farther. uh, This podcast is not day-to-day. This is today. You ain't coming back till next week. So at the least, at the minimum, it's week to week. All right, you're the you're the uh, vice president of the anti day to day fan club. You're we'll get some more t-shirts. And yeah, that's right. No more day to day. All right, let's take a break, Terry. When we come back, uh, I want to ask you: Is the Guardians' manager job the best one available in the majors right now? And we can get into some of that when we come back on Terry's talking. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. 
This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. We're back on Terry's Talking. David Campbell and Terry Pluto. We're going to talk some baseball here. You had a column last few days, Terry, about the Guardians manager opening, and you're kind of comparing it to some of the other ones in Major League Baseball. And I, I think it's a good question. Like, is this job in Cleveland the best one in the majors right now? There's kind of three others out there right now. I don't – there might be a fourth. But uh, why don't you talk about how the Guardians fit in terms of which jobs are open and – Everybody's like, oh, I mean, it's a competition to get guys, but guys are also looking to see what what each team brings, how they run things, and what talent they have. So why don't you run through that real quick? Well, the the, the surface thing where you don't look at anything is say, well, it's not a very good job. They never spend any money in Cleveland. Start with that. That's the premise that a lot of people have. Okay, jobs that are open. New York Mets, do they spend money? Yes. Well, you know what they say, the Mets is the Mets. <laughs> They've had one winning season, one in the last seven years, one. So maybe you could do it right there. It seems like you should be able to do it right there, but they haven't. And they talk about, you know, systematic failures, you know, all that kind of stuff. Okay, another one, the Angels. How about that one? They spend money. Spend money. As one executive said to me, they have the two best players in baseball. They've had them for several years, Antani and Trout, and they can't even have a winning record. One winning season in the last eight years. Now, you would think, you know, if you're a man, I could go into this place or that place in there. This one surprised me because I thought, I thought they were better. The Giants spend money. Only one in the last seven. So, now, I happen to think that the Giants is one that I, they – Maybe I'm just wrong, but I just think they're better run than that. Now, Milwaukee's liable to come op- open because Craig Council is going to be a free agent at the end of October, the manager there. And he's supposedly going to New York because the uh, Mets hired David Stearns as GM to, from Milwaukee to go up to New York, to New York and, and he bring in Council. Then, now, Milwaukee's open. Milwaukee's like Cleveland. They're like one of the little engines that could. You know, they're, they're that mid- mid-sized market, and uh, they they tend to know what they're doing, and but the Guardians. So I said, "What do they have to sell?" And if you think about it, you would say, "What do they have to sell, David?" Uh, the core of an outstanding young pitching staff. Mm-hmm. You've got some really strong middle infielders coming up through the system to mm-hmm. develop, and you got Jose and a, and a young catching prospect that. Um, could turn into something and a potential MVP candidate at first base down the line, right? Yeah, I don't know. Miller. I don't know if Josh is MVP, but all star, and certainly yeah. the on they were brothers. You also have uh, this is one of the things that appealed to Tito when he came here years ago: stability in the front office. You don't have a meddling owner, and you have stability in the front office. Then you have in the last eleven years nine winning seasons. And you had six trips to the playoffs and one went to the World Series. So, and you're in the Central Division. So that those are points. As they said, some of these other franchises, 
you know, how many managers, how many GMs have the Mets gone through? And how are you going to make that work when you keep changing? We're here. You don't get that. But it's not like they just tolerate total mediocrity. Of course, I get the emails from the fans. Well, if you don't win the title, it just isn't worth it. Oh, please. Really? So it's just about championship or nothing. I mean, I would hate to grow up in that family. What do you mean he got only got an A minus? <laughs> I want an A plus. You have to have the highest grade in your class or you suck. I mean, you know, that is just dumb. Now, you don't want to follow them. That's fine. And I get that. We all like different fun sports than others. But to claim that the Guardians slash Tribe have not put out a good product, sometimes better than that, sometimes slightly worse, but never a bad product uh, in the last decade, it's just false. And so if you're a manager looking at that, you're thinking, well, they gave me, they'll give me a shot. And, you know, for the Guardians fans who were thinking, I mean, just for some perspective, Terry, like yeah. the, I think the Yankees finished seven games out of a wild card spot this year mm-hmm. with their payroll. And I think the Red Sox were 11 games back. Uh, and, and, you know, and, Guardians and, 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 fans. Mets, Giants, Astros. I'm yeah. not, not Astros, Angels. Mets, Angels, Giants. They spend like crazy. I mean, I, do I wish the Guardians had spent more, maybe jacked this thing up another 20 or 30 million? Of course. But it isn't just just throwing money at it. I mean, even if you look at the Browns with the salary cap, by the way, I want to clarify something. This is just to understand. I keep getting emails. Why did the Browns have so much cap money, cap room money this year? Why are they, why are they hoarding all this cap money this year, David? Because they're going to need it. It rolls over, and it's an average. It's not just for one season. Preach they've got, it, brother. They've got to pay Miles Garrett. They've got to pay Nick Chubb. They've got to pay Deshaun Watson, and it all rolls over. You don't want to hamstring yourself so you can't bring somebody in. Yes, yes. That money, the $30 million or whatever they're over, you could just, excuse me, under the cap, you roll over into the following season. That's what they're doing. And so uh, people need to, to be aware of that. But in the past, the Browns have spent – I remember the uh, last – well, I remember that the last year of Mike Pettin, the Browns had the highest paid defense in the NFL, but I remember that as being a fact. I do not remember anything about that defense. And I remember that was the end of Mike Pettin. Hmm. So they threw a lot of money at kind of broken down free agents and stuff like that. So I'm uh, – to go back to here is how you spend your money, how you develop your players. And what you can't have, by the way, the front office had a bad year. We've talked about that. Uh, whether it was Zanino and uh, Josh Bell and not, you know, Nolan Jones trade, et cetera. You know, Junior Caminero. That was a, a reply to my question when I bought that trade. And <laughs> Antonetti just didn't even try it. This is a bad trade. And he didn't even want to get into the faulty thinking on that, but I'm sure that's one that's kept them up a few nights. Nonetheless, overall, you would feel confident coming into the situation that it's a, it's a franchise that's won in the past with a stable front office and good ownership. And if Terry Francona, I'm sure if you call him up, he'll give you the the bet, you know the, the whole all down. And I remember I said to him, well, "What kind of job is it?" He said, "What do you mean?" Uh, 
I said, was it a good job or what? He still goes, no, it's a wonderful job. And I said, wonderful. He said, because of the people and the stability. And, you know, he came out of being shattered, you know, emotionally by the end of his seven years in Boston. So uh, those are those are things that are interesting. Just as it's interesting to look at the big three that are looking for managers now, who they are and what, what their payrolls are, and what have they done lately? Yeah, and just one clue, Terry, that we might be able to use to tell what kind of, you know, we living here, we, we see the Guardians every day. We know what they're all about. And I'm interested, this Craig Albernaz, that he's the mm-hmm. Giants bullpen and catching coach. I'm guessing he has interviewed for that job in San Francisco. I don't know. But, like, if he ends up here, I, I'd be curious to hear why and kind of what the differences were. So, again, I don't know who the Giants are looking for or if he's in the running. But, um, yeah, if he leaves there to come here, that could that could give us some interesting clues about what the job is and, and how it looked to somebody from the outside. Oh, so. By the way, um, Buck Showalter is not a candidate here. Some people asked about that because he had a year here a few years ago, uh, much like Terry Francona did in between jobs. And they like uh, Buck, but that's not the – I think they're going younger. And they told me they don't want just a guy that's going to sit there. Now, there's a couple of franchises in, in baseball where the front office sends down the lineup at 2 o'clock from the analytics department of GM, and that's kind of what plays. Now, I'm sure they send down suggestions to Francona, but I don't think anybody's making out his lineup, and they told me that they don't intend to have a manager who's just basically a robot. Um, well, and you wrote well, about this, Terry, like the, I mean, the, the uh, Jose batting in the, thir- the three-hole went on forever. Yeah. <laughs> Even though the analytics said he should be in the two-hole, like Jose liked batting number three. He liked being uh, in that spot, and they let Tito keep him there until the two-spot was open after they made the trade, and then he, they moved him to the two-hole. But uh, there's some flexibility. It's not analytics or everything, and, and we don't trust uh, what players think or what managers think. There's There was some flexibility there, and I think that reflects well on this organization in terms of melding the two. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, he liked batting behind Ahmed. He liked batting the two guys, Quan and Ahmed, ahead of him. And then um, when Ahmed got traded, then he moved him up to second in August. And he had 207, by the way, in August. Jose did. So then I got, well, you see what happens? He moved him out of his comfort zone. He didn't have Josh Naylor batting behind him. They put Josh Naylor behind him in September. He batted 304. Of course, they had like Ramon Laureano and nobody batting fourth. I mean, remember the Cole Calhoun era. So that clearly puts up that, you know, you really have got to get some type of, you know, they need to find how they found Mike Napoli a few years ago, some kind of older slugger there. It's not going to cost them a lot of money, but maybe go out there and hit 25 homers and have a little bit of, you know, the big word now is gravitas or, you know, in (laughs) other words, uh, that kind of, personality too that that fits with the with the team so i don't know who that person would be but they really do need to they were hoping bell could kind of be that guy but uh that didn't work out till he went to miami maybe for next week we can uh i'll, I'll see if we can get a list together of guys like that that mm-hmm. are free agents maybe huh and we'll see if yeah. we can do that there's usually uh, one right, or two around like that yeah okay. yeah we'll kick that around next week so all right terry we're gonna uh let's move on to the cavaliers we're running a little bit long here we're gonna do our season predictions next week because the Cavs open a week from wednesday which is uh october 25th they're at brooklyn uh I, i've really been interested in amani bates and the way the Cavs are talking about him i mean he, this guy 
coming out of high school is projected to be a lottery pick. He dropped to the second round. The Cavs draft him. He's, I, I think he's not turning 20 until January. Mm-hmm. But listen, listen to these quotes. And then I want to ask you, like, wh- what are the Cavs doing here with Imani Bates with, with what they're saying? Uh, Darius Garland on Imani Bates. He can really shoot it. I didn't know he could shoot it like that. Uh, I, I, Chris Fedor had a story today. They're starting to call him three money. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, JB Bickerstaff. Amani is a special talent. People shortchange how high his basketball IQ is as a playmaker. Everybody always talks about his ability to score and create shots, but he sees the floor extremely well. We're extremely fortunate that Amani was there at number 49. I believe that Amani is fortunate to be here also because I think the pairing works for his development and advancement of his career. Um, he's nine of 20 from behind the arc in the first three preseason games. So Terry, like there's, I'm just trying to think like, are they preparing him to send to the charge and they want to kind of make him feel like he's doing really well to bring that momentum to the charge? Or is this something where they're actually thinking about keeping him on the bench? I'm kind of weighing the pros and cons of each in my head. What, where do you stand on that? Well, there, if you keep him here, he's got to be in the rotation. He's got to play. If not, he needs to go. Now, I believe part of this came from uh, he struggled his first two years in college, even at, at Central, was it Central Michigan he was? or No, Eastern, Eastern Michigan. Eastern, yeah, yep. His hometown, Ypsilanti. Um, there he was selfish. He didn't defend. He didn't even, his, his shooting numbers weren't that good. You know, they drafted him based on projection, and that was it in the second round. And I think as they got to know him, they felt this kid was pretty beat down. And actually, his first two games in the summer league were pretty crummy. And then he began to buy into what they were doing with with the guys. Because suddenly he was out there with Sam Merrill, who's played forever, and he's kind of G-League things. And he was with um, the member of the Mobley family. You can never have enough Mobleys, remember, when it comes to playing team basketball and playing it the right way. So we had older Mobley there. And he began by the end of the summer league to play really well, you know, finding his spots and that. And I think especially it's defensively too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He was fair defensively, and he was excellent in moving the ball and figuring out when to shoot, when not to, and driving to the rim once in a while, which is important. Now, what's happened here? If you're JB Bickerstaff, you may love him, but who's your small forwards? Let's go through it. Oh. Um... So Max Struess will be starting, mm-hmm. and you, you, they're going to rotate. I think Niang will be uh, in there, and who else, Terry? Who else are Okoro. they putting out there? Uh, Dean, Dean Wade. Okoro, Dean Wade. And you may have some of these guys go between small forward and power forward. Imani can do that. But in other words, you put him in this whole group there. I just want to – if you're going to keep him, you, then somebody else is going to be out. Dean Wade's had a nice camp too. You know, they were in love with Dean Wade at this time a year ago. And then he has some injuries in that. So we'll see how this plays out. But either way, it's a lot better than we're talking about, oh, my goodness, you know, this guy, he just can't make a shot. He's gunning it up all the time. He doesn't want to defend. It's just the opposite of all that. So that's exciting. And I will admit I am shocked because I basically did a lot of work on his last two years in college. And the stuff I heard was bad uh, on his uh, – as they, as they said to me, his AAU attitude. So the other thing I always remember, he still was a teenager. And as you mentioned, he won't be 20 until January. 
Yeah, like when they drafted him, it's like, all right, he's going to be with the Charge the whole season. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's going to take the Isaiah Mobley route, and and he'll, you know, they'll they'll see where he fits in next season. But like when I saw this stuff coming on, you know, coaches do things for a reason, Terry. They yeah. they don't say things on accident. And when I saw this from JB, like on more than one occasion, it's like, all right, well, what are they trying to accomplish here? And and I'd be shocked if he was like you said on the on the Cavs roster. I I think he'll be playing with the Charge and. Uh, you know, one reason the Cavs love to have the charge here is because there's that closeness and, and guys oh, on yeah. the Cavs can go watch the charge and vice versa. And they can practice together if they Easy need to, to practice. Bring. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's another reason we're going to see him playing at the Wolstein Center this year. But I, I just was interested in the quotes because, like I said, co- coaches have motivations for doing everything. And um, we shall see. So we'll, and we'll also, know more I soon. Mean, the, old, the old line is somebody always gets hurt. And so you, that's true. Having too many forwards is not a problem, and so we'll we'll see what happens. All right. Um, sticking with basketball here, Terry, I did want to mention a longtime NBA coach, former Cavs head coach Brendan Malone, uh, passed away uh, within the last week. He was 81. Uh, he's the father of Nuggets coach Michael Malone, and um, Brendan was in the league for 27 years. I, I'm sure you crossed paths with him, and I just wanted mm-hmm. to spend a quick minute talking about if you had anything you wanted to say about Brendan Malone. Really nice guy. It's an interesting um, fam- coaching family tree. If you go, it goes back to Hubie Brown coming out of New Jersey, and Hubie Brown then basically his kind of first guy that he brought into the NBA was Mike Fratello. It's almost like a biblical thing. Hubie Brown begot Mike Fratello, who begot Ronnie Rothstein, who begot Mike uh, uh, Brendan Malone, who literally begot Mike Malone, who then was also on a staff here uh, with with some of the other coaches. So they they real they took care of each other. There's a few other of those guys that are in that coaching family tree too. But I remember Brendan was an assistant with Paul Silas, and right after Dan Gilbert bought the team. He immediately wanted to fire Paul Silas. This is year two of LeBron and Silas. Jim Paxson stalled him off for about a month. And finally, he he brought in, he fired uh, Silas, the owner did, and wanted to bring in Brendan Malone because Brendan Malone had ties to the Pistons, were uh, the hometown of Gilbert. And by the way, Chuck Daly was another on that family tree. So... It was always fun for me to watch how this stuff sometimes played out uh, and how these different coaches were. I, I always thought Brendan was a sharp guy, a tremendous top assistant, um, didn't really have a lot of head coaching experience. It was an impossible job, by the way, in Cleveland when he took over. And then uh, at the end of that year, my, uh, Mike Brown was hired primarily by Dan Gilbert. Uh, and then they also brought in Danny Ferry later. But uh, Danny Ferry and uh, – Mike Brown were close, so that was not a problem. But that's kind of how all that played out. All right. Well, great basketball family, and um, sad to see the news of his passing. So, yeah. All right, Terry, we had our 100th podcast episode a few weeks ago, and you and I, and, and you were asking fans especially to write in, like, why they love Cleveland sports. So we've been hearing from fans all over the world uh, about why they're Cleveland sports fans, where they live, and, and why that connection is so important. we got a couple more. We'll get into real quick. We got a couple minutes here. This first one is from Joe Alman. I hope I said hope I said your last name right there, Joe. And he says, "Hi Terry, I'm a proud graduate of Bay High School, class of 1980, and I currently live outside of London in the UK. My wife is wow. British, 
and the reason I am here. I originally moved to the UK in 1994 for two years and then back again in 99, and I've been here ever since. I remain a Cleveland sports fan, predominantly the Browns. Originally from North Carolina, I moved to Bay in 1974. Soon after arriving, I became swept up by the local fervor for the Browns. My support was cemented by the great run of the Cardiac Kids and the ride they took us on. My fandom became even stronger when I went to the University of Cincinnati and had to deal with the fair-weather Bengals fans. <laughs> <laughs> My freshman year, you could not find a Bengals fan, but when their fortunes turned around the next year, the city was Bengal mad. As a Browns fan, this made me sick. <laughs> regarding the other cleveland teams the miracle of richfield may be a Cavs fan and just my loyalty to cleveland makes me a guardians fan over the last 25 years the ability to follow cleveland teams has changed dramatically to begin with the only coverage you could find was in usa today slowly this improved and now i'm able to follow the team closely via the internet and podcasts like yours so that's my story thanks for your coverage and he says go browns and again that's joe alman thanks for that joe okay who's the other one all right, this one is from Max, and Max says, Hey, I'm writing from high in the Rockies. I'm in Keystone, Colorado at about 9,200 feet. I wow. try to catch the show every week, and I almost always walk away with a more nuanced perspective, so thank you for that. Well, thanks for the compliment, Mac. Max. I grew up in Canton. I went to school in Indiana and then moved out west in 2003 when I graduated. I've been here ever since. As to the why of my Cleveland love, it started with wanting to have a common point of connection, something to talk about with my dad, my friends, my relatives yeah. back east. As Terry is fond of saying, that's the beauty of sports. It's one of those safe topics. I've also come to realize it's a way for me to stay connected to my roots. You two mentioned Jose and Chubb this week, and they're never forgetting where they came from. Listening to y'all and paying attention to Cleveland sports helps me do the same. It probably goes Browns, Cavs, and guards for me. All the best, and thanks for the perspective. And again, that's from Max, writing from Keystone, Colorado. Thanks, Max. And I I love, too, how they've mentioned um, the ability to follow your team anywhere in the world. Yeah, they talk and about that, it's, cra- it's crazy. You can watch games wherever you are now. It's insane mm-hmm. when you think and, about and, it. And get, I mean, I would say at least a third to a half of my emails come from out of state, and people put them, put them on. So that's way higher than I would think. Interesting. Yeah. 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 So that's that that's that's cool, and it makes me feel really good. All right. Well. Cleveland Sports Nation is all over the world. It's international, and so is Pluto Nation. Uh, thanks for those letters. If you want to send in some comments, questions, or any stories, you can hit us at sports at cleveland.com. And again, just another quick plug to Terry's newsletter. Just go to cleveland.com slash newsletters, and you can sign up. It'll take a minute. So I think we're done, right, Terry? I think that'll do it. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm going to go take this little munchkin for a walk. <laughs> And we'll catch you Mm -hmm. next week on Terry's Talking.